0: Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Today, we're discussing writer Gordon Merrick. William Gordon Merrick was born in a suburb of Philadelphia on August 3, 1916. The younger son of Rodney King Merrick and Mary Cartwright Gordon Merrick. The Merricks were comfortably upper-middle class. Gordon's great-grandfather, Samuel Vaughn Merrick, had been the founder of the Pennsylvania Railroad and a philanthropist and member of the American Philosophical Society. Gordon attended the Episcopal Academy for high school, where he excelled in the Dramatics Club and became editor-in-chief of the school's weekly newspaper. It was also there that Gordon had his first same-sex experiences. For over a century, Merrick men had attended the University of Pennsylvania, some of them even serving on the university's board of trustees. But Gordon decided instead to go to Princeton. Based solely on his academic performance in high school, Gordon would not have been admitted but his influential maternal grandmother, Clarice Marston Billups, with whom Gordon was close, pulled strings to ensure he was let in. At Princeton, Gordon again immersed himself in theater, quickly becoming one of Princeton's leading men of the stage. He spent a lot of time as well in New York City, and at the end of his junior year, he decided to drop out of Princeton to pursue a Broadway career. Gordon's big break came in 1939, when he was cast as Richard Stanley in The Man Who Came to Dinner, a comedy by George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart, which debuted at the Music Box Theater in New York City. It was everything Gordon had dreamed of, but after a year, he quit the play several months before the show closed. He never fully explained his reasons for quitting, but he did later say that the monotony of playing the same role night after night was part of it. Whatever the reasons, Gordon never returned to Broadway. After Broadway, Gordon worked as a reporter, writing for the Washington Star, the Baltimore Sun, and finally the New York Post. By this point, the United States had entered World War II, and Gordon longed to be useful in the war. He was rejected by both the Army and the American Field Service. But in the fall of 1943, he learned about a new government agency, the Office of Strategic Services, OSS, run by William Wild Bill Donovan which was the precursor to the CIA. Gordon's acting abilities and his command of the French language were attractive to the OSS, and they brought him aboard in spring 1944. First, sending him to spy camp, and then, in July 1944, shipping him overseas. In southern France, Gordon was disguised as an army officer. And assigned a mission to turn double agents. It was intense and demanding work, and Gordon's skills were put to good use. At the same time, he was gathering excellent background information for his future novels. After the war ended, Gordon resigned from the OSS and moved to Mexico, where he lived with an Air Force lieutenant. Named Bob Richardson. It was there that Gordon began seriously writing. He wrote his first novel, The Strumpet Wind, in less than five months, basing the story on his experiences in intelligence work during the war. The novel was published by William Morrow and was a critical success. In 1946, Gordon and Richardson moved to France. Where they lived openly as a couple. Gordon continued to write novels critical of the U.S. When he couldn't find a U.S. publisher for his second novel, he published in France instead. By his third novel, he once again found a U.S. publisher. Things had begun to sour in his relationship with Richardson, and in 1956, Gordon met an American dancer named Charles Hulse, and they fell in love. After a time living in New York and San Francisco, Gordon and Hulse returned to France. And then, in 1959, they bought a house on Idra, a Greek island where they ended up spending most of their time, and where they became a part of the elite set of the island. When Jacqueline Kennedy visited the island in 1961, Gordon was her guide. Throughout the 1960s, Gordon continued to write, but he started to have trouble finding anyone to publish his work. Throughout the 1960s, Gordon continued to write, but he had trouble finding anyone to publish his work. Perhaps because of that rejection, Gordon decided, finally, to put a gay character at the center of his novel. He had written many gay characters in his past work, but they had been supporting characters. In 1970, Gordon published what would become his best-known work, The Lord Won't Mind, a gay autobiographical novel, which includes a happy ending for the main couple, Charlie and Peter. Publishing an openly gay novel was not an easy task, but Gordon's literary agent, Monica McCall, convinced Bernard Geis to publish it, and The Lord Won't Mind was on the New York Times bestseller list for 16 weeks in 1970. Despite the commercial success, however, the critics were less impressed. That would remain a theme for the rest of Gordon's career. Eventually, he wasn't able to find hardcover publishers for his works at all, but Avon Publications published paperbacks of his books to continued commercial success. In 1976, Gordon and Hulse bought a house in Sri Lanka, spending much of Gordon's remaining time there. In addition to France and England, Gordon died of lung cancer in March 1988, leaving behind a devastated Hulse. In 1991, Hulse donated a collection of Gordon's materials to Princeton University, an essential step in our ability to know the details of Gordon's life. Joining me now, To help us understand Gordon Merrick and his writing is Dr. Joseph Ortiz, an associate professor of English at the University of Texas at El Paso, and author of the 2022 book Gordon Merrick and the Great Gay American Novel. Hi, Joe. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yes. So I am delighted that you have introduced me to Gordon Merrick, who I sadly had not heard of before, but I'm glad that I have now. So I wanted to uh, ask a little bit about, uh, I love the story you write in the book about how you first came to know Gordon Merrick's novels. So I'd love if you could talk about that, but then also how that led to you actually writing a biography of him.
1: Sure, sure. I'd, I'd love, to, love to talk about that. Uh, so I I discovered Gordon Merrick uh, when I was 14 years old when I was living in, in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which which is a medium sized town uh, about 40 minutes from El Paso, Texas. Uh, so at the time it was you know this was 1987, so it was about a town of 60,000 people, so relatively small. And I was pretty certain that I was gay, but I didn't know any other gay people, and I didn't really know where I could find any information or books about gay people. And I was also honestly pretty introverted and bookish. And one of the things I would do during the summer was hang out by myself at the local shopping mall. And I'd spend most of my time there in the the Walden books, the the bookstore chain that I believe went out of business some, some years ago. It just so happened that one day, when I was browsing the general fiction section, that I came across a paperback edition of *The Lord Won't Mind*, which is Gordon Merrick's, um, you know, breakthrough, you know, gay novel that was published in 1970, and it completely blew my. I had looked; I'd already looked for gay books at the local library and at the university library uh, with no success, and suddenly here was this book, proudly and explicitly advertising itself as a gay novel. The cover of the book was was also pretty, pretty astounding. It had two good-looking men on it, very handsome and very preppily dressed, with a Princeton University building in the background. The cover alone, you know, fulfilled every fantasy I had as a gay 14-year-old in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Eventually I worked up the courage to buy the book, along with the one other Gordon Merrick novel uh, that was in the store. And I read them voraciously. These were both novels in which a young gay man, after much trial and tribulation and a lot of sex, it has to be said, because Gordon Merrick's novels, uh, explicit sex scenes, these young gay men ultimately end up in a committed long-term relationship with another man. So that was a very powerful message for me in, in 1987. And it confirmed what I what I thought or what I intuited you know could be possible, but I had not until that point you know found any any evidence of it. So the novels, which were the the first gay novels I'd ever read, um had a profound influence on you know my 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 notion of 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 being a gay man and many years later is, is that that experience a lot of you know testimonials, a lot of anecdotes, you know where where someone you know describes discovering by chance, a Gordon Merrick novel in a, in a Walden books, or or a B Dalton in shopping malls all over the country. But the idea for a biography of Gordon Merrick, of writing a biography, didn't come until many many years later, uh, when I was a graduate student at Princeton University in the in the early two thousands. By by complete chance, I met a gay man named Rick Garcia, who was a writer in L A at the time, but who had done his undergraduate. Work at Princeton. So, in the course of our conversation, we discovered that we had both read Gordon Merrick as teenagers and we were both fans. And he mentioned to me that Princeton owned some of Gordon's manuscripts because Gordon himself had gone to Princeton. And when he died, his papers were donated to the university. Now, I was not a student of gay literature or of queer history, I was a PhD student in the English department writing a dissertation on Shakespeare. At one point, though, I needed a break from my work on Shakespeare. So I decided to look up this collection that Rick Garcia had told me about. So I went through the process of going to the the Rare Book Library at Princeton and requesting the the materials, looking them up. Well, it turned out that the Gordon Merrick Papers at Princeton was a huge archive, boxes and boxes That not only included his working manuscripts for the novels, but also his correspondence, his letters, his business records, his unpublished works, and most most wonderfully, photographs of Gordon and and his friends and, and, and family. Now, the novels that Gordon had published in the 1970s and 80s never included a photo of him. In fact, they included almost no information about Gordon at all. Um, so I had I had read his novels, um, but I had never never seen a picture of him. And I still remember the first time I used the Merrick Archive, and I found this 1954 passport with his photograph in it. And here was this handsome, debonair man with you know piercing piercing eyes, who looked at, as though he had stepped right out of the novels. It was really it was it's was just really captivating. Well, the more I, I researched the archive, you know, the more I looked at those boxes, the more I realized that, in fact, Gordon based much of his novels on himself and his experiences as a gay man. Including his, his experiences, his early experiences in New York, where he was you know living for a few years after college, you know, first, you know, trying to be a Broadway actor and then as a journalist. Um, but then in France and Greece, where, where he had, was an expatriate writer, you know, after World War II. And so once I started to realize just how how interesting and how unique Gordon's life had been, I thought, well, this this could make a a decent biography or at least at least a couple articles. And the other so and and I I started the project, you know, by 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 writing a couple articles and and, and publishing them. But the other the other reason why I decided I really wanted to write about Gordon uh, was at the archive at Princeton in addition to containing Gordon's papers, also contained a huge box of fan mail that Gordon had received throughout the 70s and 80s. These letters were a revelation for me. They attested to the the huge impact that Gordon's novels had had on gay men all over the country and and in many other countries where where people had managed to to get copies of, of the novels. And and in some of these cases, these were these were readers who were not even gay men. There mm-hmm. was a surprising number of, of women readers who had found Gordon's novels and had admired them so much that they were um, you know saying just how much they, they they loved and learned you know about about gay gay life from from reading his his books. Yeah, this was an aspect of of gay literary history, you know, essentially of, of gay history that simply had not been documented. Certainly not part of the the standard histories of gay literature and culture were available at the time. Um, it was not it was not mentioned in the the anthologies of of gay literature. Um, you know, Merrick was was not included in, in the the anthologies of, of gay literature, and and still still isn't. Um, so I thought that someone needed to to at least write about this history, at least document it. And it was it was pretty clear to me that no one else was was doing this. No one else seemed to be interested in this. And I was pretty sure, and I'm still pretty sure that I, I was the only person who, who had been using this this archive at, at Princeton. So this this for many years, this became a labor of love. Because I, I, I stayed a Shakespeare scholar, and I am still nominally a Renaissance scholar. That's my that's my that's my day job. Um so this this was something I, I worked on for years. Um and I I contacted you know other people in the process you know people who who knew Gordon or who might have known you know someone who knew, who knew Gordon. So this this was something that I that I just worked on um on the side when I had time to to do it. And it, it wasn't really till the pandemic happened and I had a lot more uh, writing time at home that I thought this this is this is the time to to finally finish finish the book. But I also I also decided to finish it when I did uh, because I got some some very good advice um, from a, from a mentor of mine, who who was very familiar with the project, who told me the Renaissance is is not going away, um, but the people who read Gordon Merrick and remember his novels, they they won't be around forever. So it's it's probably it's probably a good idea to to finish the book now. So that that gentle nudge um, was 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 kind of the the impetus that I that I needed to to finally finish the book.
0: So can you talk a little bit about the difference between researching the Renaissance and, you know, documents that are so, so old and and looking at that literature and that language versus something that is in living memory? You could actually talk to people who knew Gordon Merrick and, you know, what that's sort of like as a a researcher, as a scholar, looking at that very different kind of work, different kind of history and archives.
1: was a huge difference, a huge, and it, it, in large part for exactly the reason you said. I I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people, which meant I had to talk to a lot of people. Uh, so one of the one of the reasons I always say I I became an academic in Renaissance literature so that I wouldn't have to talk to a lot of people. I'm still that bookish <laughs> person who liked to you know go to the, the 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 bookstore you know for fun during during the summer, but for for this kind of project uh i had to i had to find you know people who who could tell me more information about gordon because he was as as much as he put himself into his novels he did not write almost any autobiographical material um he that he was just not um he was not interested in in writing autobiography he was you know, strangely, a very private person. You know, when it when it came to to interviews or their published works, um, so I, I I had to I had to find other 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 sources for for details and facts about his, his life. Um, and 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 fortunately, you know, that there were, uh, there were still you know people, uh, who who were alive who had memories of him. Um, his his longtime partner Charles Hulse, um, was still was still alive and and living in, in Gaul Sri Lanka. So I I just I track down as well as I as I could if I could find an email address, if I could find a phone number, what what whatever it was. If I knew someone who might have known them, I got in touch with them to see if they could, you know, give me contact information. Yeah, at times it felt like detective work. <laughs> um and I became a real, a real expert on, on Google, you know, just trying to find little little bits of information. But that was also that was also the the most exciting part of the project, and that that was honestly the part of the project that I could have I could have done forever. Um, the book might never have gotten finished uh, yeah. because I, I I loved those moments when when I found someone who's just real just willing to to just tell me everything they knew. They were they were wonderful conversations.
0: Yeah. So Gordon Merrick's life is just so fascinating. He this. Princeton time, this being on Broadway, <laughs> being a reporter, being a spy, like it's its just this fascinating life. But it, it leads to this interesting tension that so many of the reviewers say, oh, this stuff he's writing is so fantastical. And yet he's writing what he knows. He's writing his life. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about that that tension and, and sort of what that meant in his writing?
1: So it, it is a real tension in his novels. Because on the one hand, There's a lot of really rich autobiographical information, especially especially when when he writes about what it's like to be a gay man in in the 30s and the 40s and and 50s. Uh, But he had very he had very little experience with with gay culture after after that period, Um, in large part because he was he was he was living in either Greece, you know, we're in in a small island um, in Idra uh for, for much of the 16s and 70s, or he was he was living in, in Sri Lanka, you know, for the last for the last decade of his life. Um so he he had by that point, you know, very very little contact um with, with the kind of gay culture that the writers for 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 gay magazine or vector magazine um were writing about in, in the 70s and, and 80s. You know, so the the you know the, the gay critics and the gay writers who are very, very active in in, in America, in, in the 70s and 80s, they were very much focused on what was what was going on, um, usually in the big cities, in New York, and San Francisco, and and, and Los Angeles, um, and that was a that was a culture that that Gordon really knew very very little about, but it's also it's also what makes his novels so interesting, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, and what I try to emphasize in in, in the book is that there is history here but you have to get at it at a slightly different way you have to sort of kind of decode you know some of the things that that Gordon is is doing in novels at times it's very thinly disguised autobiography at other times uh, it's it's autobiography that's mixed with with other uh, other things
0: yes yeah, so he had a uh, really kind of an antipathy toward american culture it seems at times you know was not just unfamiliar with gay culture in the US, but but kind of didn't want to be there, you know, sort of fled, as you mentioned, lived in in Greece and Sri Lanka. He's not, of course, the only person who does this there. uh, And you write about a lot of other writers and artists who are an expatriate community. Uh, and certainly we know after World War II, there's a lot of African-Americans who sort of go and live in Paris because the the culture in the U.S. is so uncomfortable for them. Can you talk a little bit about sort of what it was he was escaping in uh, the U.S. in American culture, what it was he found in these other places abroad?
1: Well, I think one of the things he was escaping was his family. Which, again, is not is not that unusual <laughs> for some people, but his 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 family particularly made him feel, you know, the, the the pressures of, you know, what it what it meant to have certain social expectations of you. Not not simply as a, you know, as a as a man, you know, as, for him, you know, a gay man, you know, the kinds of pressures that were, were, were very much felt, you know, particularly in America in, in the 1950s. But also the the social expectations that came from you know being part of this you know upper class family you know that had you know very very deep roots on both sides of his family you know both his his father's side which was this very you know long established you know Philadelphia family and his mother's side you know which was this you know very established you know southern southern family and he you know he was it was pretty clear that you know throughout his life you know he had. He had felt, you know, the pressure of of those expectations, and particularly his, his his family, who were who were very, very socially conscious. So that he he kind of used that, or he kind of saw that as a as a reflection of of American culture and American capitalism more more generally. That's that's a big reason why why his early novels, um, so the novels that he wrote before the the, the Lord won't, won't mind the post war novels. You know pretty pretty much uh, can be described as as anti-capitalist novels. you know, somehow American capitalism is always the big villain in in these novels. and and he saw he saw Europe, you know particularly France as as this new possibility, you know, as this place where where uh society operated by by different rules, you know, where, where the things that that made you important in America didn't didn't so much apply. And part of a big part of the reason was that he was able to find you know, these other literary and other artistic communities, you know, both in both in France and, and definitely in Idra, you know, which became a destination for expatriate writers who were who also, you know, by America or England or, or Australia. Um, you know, he, he found that as as a place for for a new kind of a new kind of life. And and practically speaking, he was able to live fairly openly as a as a gay man in these places, you know, he found, you know, pockets, he found, you know, groups of people uh, who knew who knew he was gay, who very much knew the the nature of of his relationships um, with the two men, you know, who he's together for 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 much of his life. Um, and they they, for the most part, fine with it. Um, and the people, the few people that weren't fine with it really couldn't do very much, you know, other than maybe make a snide comment here and there. Uh, so it was it was a very, you know, for him that really emphasized, um even exaggerated, you know, the the difference between American culture and European culture because because of the the communities that he found and, and the particular places where he found himself.
0: You mentioned earlier he's still not really sort of listed in the canon of, you know, great gay authors. And it seems like during his life he was often disregarded by not just sort of the mainstream press, not just the the New York Times critics or whatever, but by the gay press as well. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the reasons for that? Why, uh, although if you read him, can see that he's a great author, why he was dismissed?
1: Well, I wouldn't say he was a great author. <laughs> I would say he's he's a pretty good author. Uh, so that's, that's one of the, you know, one of the things when, you know when I'm asked about you know reading reading Merrick or when someone asks me to recommend Merrick, I say it's 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 pretty good, um, but it's it's not it's not at the at the level of say you know Andrew Holleran or Edmund White or, or Alan Hollinghurst you know who are just these really just beautiful writers who, who are just really developed, you know these these very unique voices. Gordon always you know saw himself more as this this kind of Fitzgerald esque. Uh, writer with with very you know fairly stark prose. Um and, and he never really he never really moved moved on from that. Um but he he did a pretty good job of of developing a, a very you know elegant, you know, very sparse um direct style style of 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 writing. But what I think made and still makes Gordon Merrick the, the kind of figure who, who doesn't, you know, doesn't get in included or certainly not emphasized in histories of, of, of gay literature is that he was very immediately pigeonholed as a certain kind of writer uh, by, by, by gay critics after The Lord Mine came out in 1970. And a lot of that had to do with the fact was, was that they didn't recognize, you know, their own experiences in his novels. And, and so they 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 immediately wrote him off as this melodramatic romance writer, you know, who was just writing about stuff that really, really didn't apply to, to, to gay, to gay men. And that became entrenched so, so quickly that when he did, when he did try to, to, to write a novel that was connected to contemporary gay culture. So his novel, the, an idol for others, which he he wrote, he published in 1978 you know, was, was actually based on, on one of his friends, but was actually a large part of the novel is set in, in, in 1970s, New York City and, and San Francisco. Even when he, even when he did that, uh, the gay critics ignored it. They, they didn't even read it because he was, they already had assumed that he was, he was that, that sappy romance writer that they remembered from the Lord of Mind. And it didn't help that by that time his books were only being published in paperback by Avon uh, which really really liked to use these these wonderful sumptuous sexy covers um that w- were designed by by an artist named Victor Gadino, who wrote the, designed these real who's who's still alive and who's still um uh, designing covers for romance novels uh, they're 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 just really they're 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 really exquisite but they really also solidified uh, this notion of, of Gordon Merrick as as kind of a, a a gay Harlequin romance writer.
0: Yeah. And in being pigeonholed, though, like that, it, it seems like he did very well commercially being published by Avon with the paperback that they did a great job getting his novel out there. And he was able to live pretty comfortably with that, despite the lack of critical acclaim.
1: Absolutely. And this was a big tension for Gordon himself, because he he really... You know, to the to the end of his life, he really craved the prestige of of of, of hardback publication. You know, he really wanted to be that kind of Norman Mailer esque novel writer, and, and so he was always trying to find a, a a hardback publisher. You know, a respectable hardback publisher for for his novels. Um, at the same time, he enjoyed the checks that were coming in through through Avon um, because they 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 knew very well how to how to market and distribute. His novels. That was one of the really fascinating things I found when I was doing my my research for for, for the book was that Avon very early on in, in the 70s um had had developed a very a very shrewd strategy not only just for marketing the novels but for distributing them. They actually had a very strategic plan for for getting these books you know into into chain bookstores throughout the country, you know, including you know places in the south. Where it would have, you know, seemed to be really difficult to, to 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 sell gay novels, but also in 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 rural places, you know, like like Las Cruces, you know, where where I grew up, they were they were actually very uh, deliberate in in the way that they 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 marketed these novels, knowing that they would be able to to sell thousands of them, they they would be able to get them to to a lot of people, and that these these readers were 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 very very ready to buy them. Mm-hmm.
0: So one of the things uh, that it seems like seemed the the gay critics and stuff didn't think necessarily reflected their lives is this idea that t- two men would live happily ever after. And yet that is what Gordon himself experienced. So can we talk a little bit about his, his two long-term relationships, which had he been uh, legally able to presumably would have been marriages, especially the second one, can you talk a little bit about that the the kind of relationships that that he had and you know the importance of those in in his life in his writing
1: they were crucially important for for a lot of reasons so he he was with you know his first his first partner Bob Richardson for twelve years uh and this became absolutely fundamental you know to to the way he not only thought about himself but also he the way he presented himself, you know, so when he was living in in France, you know, he they were known as a as as a couple, and they were accepted in their social circles as a, as as a couple. So I, I think it it meant a, a tremendous deal for him um, because it it gave him this this it w- it was okay, and I think it was it was you know also the the case with his um you know his his next partner who became his lifelong partner, Charles Hulse. They were known and and accepted as a as a couple um in 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 their social circles and in their business circles and and it was it was it was clear that Gordon was by nature someone who was disposed to be in a in a, in a monogamous committed relationship this, is, this isn't actually an issue that that he he represents in some of his novels you know the idea that you know that some some gay men, don't need to be monogamous and, you know, are more comfortable with that. He was clearly not, you know, he, you know, he clearly, you know, was jealous by nature and, and he found, you know, he found at least in, in Hulse, you know, you know, you know, someone who seemed to seem to have, you know, the same, the same attitude. And so they, 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 they got along very, very well together. And they did, you know, try to at least secure, you know, some of the, some of the, some of the things that come along with marriage, you know, so, so they legalized their relationship, you know, as, as much as they could, you know, they, they had, they, they, you know, one of the things they did was create a, a kind of, you know, corporate arrangement. They created a business, you know, by which all of their assets and all, including their intellectual assets were all contained within this, this business so that when one of them, Died, you know, all, all the, all the assets, all the rights, you know, would, would just naturally go to, to the other, which is exactly what, what, what happened. Both, both their, their families were were still living when, when Gordon died in 1988, but everything, everything went to, went to Hulse, you know, so, so they, they were, they, they were very smart in terms of um, what they could do legally, you know, even though as, as, as you, you said, it would, it would be, you know, still, still many years, but, you know, before, you know they could be they could be married in, in in the legal sense, but there are a lot of ways in which their their relationship very very much was 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 like a a marriage, though perhaps not so typical in that it lasted um, as long as as long as it did.
0: <laughs> yeah, and then Hulse also wrote, became a writer, and Gordon was actually able to mentor him. Could you talk a little bit about that because that is so fascinating?
1: It's very it's very fascinating and very very unlikely because Hall's uh, you know, for pretty much all his his adult life, or his younger adult life, I mean, he was an actor and a dancer, and that those were really his his only aspirations. And he was very he was very good at them, and and he he got a lot of work in his twenties and his thirties. You know, d- doing those and and the idea to write a novel, from what I can tell, you know, really didn't enter the picture until he was is much older, and after after he had been with with Gordon for for, for many years. And I can I can only surmise that, you know, after, you know, after reading and being around a writer like Gordon for that many years, he thought to himself, hey, I, I, I have something to write about, too. And you know, Gordon, you know, writing about their own their own lives and their own experiences. And he thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll try my my hand at this. Um, and he, he actually he's actually not a bad writer at all. One book that he wrote in tall cotton um, is actually very it's very well written. Which I assume part, part of which, you know, you know, came from the feedback that he got from Gordon. But it's 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 also it's also a good story. So he 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 was also good at remembering things that had happened in his life and remembering particularly, you know, those those poignant moments. And 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 was able to 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 put them into a, a novel, which again, and he he was very he was very open with this when I when I got the chance to meet with him in, in Sri Lanka back in 2012. Um and he was he was very explicit you know that, that the novel was was basically just a version of, of what he remembered in his childhood
0: mm-hmm. so you at the at the beginning of the book say that you're gonna refer to Gordon Merrick as Gordon and of course as we've been talking you've done that as well I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that because I know that's a, a decision that people need to make as they're writing biographies sort of how you refer to the, this main person you're writing about so why why did you choose to, to go with Gordon?
1: That, that, that that's um a good question i, I at times I, I don't realize i'm doing it and <laughs> and but it, it's very it's very natural for me by by now when i was writing the book it, it first it was a it was a practical matter uh because there's so many there's so many merrick's you know particularly in the first part of the book you know where i where i trace you know gordon's childhood and then and then his years in in, in college and and they, they 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 keep reusing the same names over and over in his family so there's a lot of Samuel, Vaughn, Gordon, William, Merrick. So they, they the, the man in his family pretty much use only four, draw from a set of four names. So there was, a, it, was a, it was easier just to refer to Gordon, you know, when I was referring to him and then kind of use the 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 full names of other people in his family. But it also it also felt a little more natural to refer to him as Gordon when I was talking about the person. I, I, look, I did look around for it for examples too, and so one of my examples when I was writing this biography was Emily um, Perry's, you know, great biography of Lorraine Hansberry, um, which was really, you know, one of the one of the, the biographies that I really admired and, and tried to emulate in, in some ways when I was writing this. And, and she refers to Hansberry using her first name, Lorraine. So I thought, well, if if she if she if she does it in this brilliant biography, you know, I, I can I can try it my, myself. But it's become very it's become very natural. I don't even realize I'm doing it. He's just Gordon to me. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I struggle with it a lot when I'm writing introductions to episodes. In part because I write about so many women, and they often have multiple marriages, and so their their name is changing <laughs> over time. And so, you know, I, I, I struggle with that sort of do I do I go with the first name? Which last name do I go with? So I, I appreciated that you were thoughtful about it. <laughs> One thing I've mentioned many times on this podcast is how many of these would make great films. And not only is there no film about Gordon Merrick, but as far as I can tell, there is not yet a film of any of his books either. But I, I know that's something he he tried for. Can you talk a little bit about that process and why we still have yet to see a, a film of his books?
1: Absolutely. And Ryan Murphy, if you're listening, um, <laughs> you can reach me at the University of Texas at El Paso. I. I'll, I'll send you a free copy of of the book. No, I, I quite, quite a few people have, you know, after I've talked about Gordon America in the book have have said this, this would make a a, a great, a a great topic, a great subject for a film. And I, I I agree. And, 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 and Gordon agreed also, at at least, you know, with, with the Lord won't mind, you know, quite a few times he tried to, he tried to get a film version or at times even just a, a theatrical version uh, produced, and a couple of times he got he got he got, he got close, um, but it it never materialized. There were a couple of projects that looked like they were going to happen, but ended up falling through. But I, I think I think now would would be an especially good time, in part because there there seems to be a an interest in revisiting you know some of these earlier works, and, I, and I'm thinking you know particularly of of the the film version of the the Boys in the Band. You know, which was you know this this nineteen you know sixty nine play that was then made into a uh, you know a, a film, and for 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 the longest time, you know the you know the boys in the band you know was was it was kind of it was treated like this embarrassment by by a lot of gay critics and historians, you know, because of the 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 ways in in which it represents gay men, but there there's there there seems to have been a change uh, in, in the way that 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 people you know look at these works, and, and there's there seems to be a real interest in, in, in now going back to them now with that that distance of time and seeing the the kinds of history that they that that they that they contain and that they reveal um you know history that in, in a lot of ways has not been not been really covered or has been forgotten to to, to a large degree. And I, I think I th- I think you know Gordon's work, you know, particularly the Lord won't mind, as well as his, 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 his own life. Uh, offers a really, you know, really fascinating way of, of you know, recovering, you know, some of that history, you know, that tends to get, you know, overlooked or flattened out uh, by these larger Stonewall narratives, you know, about, you know, what life was like, you know, before Stonewall, you know, before 1970. Yeah.
0: Well, I, I think it would be great if some film producers just started listening to this podcast and got lots of story ideas.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure, I'm so, sure they so do. So if you're
0: listening. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, for everybody else, how can they get a copy of your book?
1: So the book is, is currently being sold by Roman. So if you go to Roman.com, I will say that uh, currently only the hardcover edition is available. Um so I would I would strongly you know encourage anyone listening to to get your your, your local library or your university library to, to to buy it. But I can I can say that in a few months. The the paperback edition will will be published. Um. So so that and that will also be through through Roman. So Roman dot is the is the publisher. So that's that, that's that's where it's 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 available right now.
0: Excellent. Seems a little ironic that currently you can only get a hardcover of a book about Gordon Merrick, but. <laughs>
1: yeah i've 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 had to have my own you know publisher experiences and have to learn a lot about publishing, you know in in my in my own right. and yeah. um, it it still doesn't quite make sense to me. <laughs> yeah.
0: Is there anything else you wanted to make sure we talk about
1: i i I'm just fascinated by how how much of a of a sea change there's been in in the way that gay romance is is treated. you know it's 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 going to be November soon. And so I'm already getting excited about all the lifetime and Hallmark movies <laughs> that feature gay gay romance. You know, there there was a time when, you know, a lot of gay writers, you know, kind of kind of really you know turned their nose down on 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 gay romance as as a genre. But now it it seems it, it seems to be quite the you know quite quite the fashion, and and I, I I think that's fantastic. And I it's you know it's 50 years after more than 50 years after the Lord won't mind. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, this was really fun. Thanks so much for speaking with me and for introducing me to this fantastic figure and writer, Gordon Merrick.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real, real pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find
1: the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at unsung history podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email Kelly at unsung If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. MSW